Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Hello, my name is Bill Hendricks. I'm the Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center, and I want to welcome you to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Between 2009 and 2019, the Pew Research Center documented that the portion of the population that they describe as nuns, that is, those who have no affiliation with any religion, uh, rose 9 percent, and a vast majority of those nuns are millennials. In a March 5, 2021 New York Times uh, opinion article, writer Lee Stein pointed out that many of the millennials who have turned their backs on religion have nonetheless found a different kind of clergy, what they call personal growth influencers. Um, They offer nuns, she said, uh, permission, validation, and community on demand at a time when it's nearly impossible to share community in person. And in writing her article, uh, Lee raised the provocative question, how did influencers become our moral authorities? We want to discuss that question today with two women who are eminently qualified to speak into this issue. Let me introduce first Vivian Malnuni. Mabuni? It's Mabuni, yes. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Vivian Mabuni, who contributes to Kingdom by teaching and speaking, and uh, also by writing, which she considers an extension of teaching. She has two books, Warrior in Pink, A Story of Cancer, Community, and The God Who Comforts. Love that title. And also, Open Hands, Willing Heart, Discover the Joy of Saying Yes to God. She is a blogger and a podcaster. She's married to Darren, and together they have served on staff with crew for over 30 years at Berkeley and UCLA. And the Mabunis are parents to two, or I'm sorry, three 20 something children. Uh, Vivian, welcome to the Table Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd also like to introduce Jen Jet Barrett, uh, who wants to help people live out the wisdom of something Walt Disney summarize this way, first think, second dream, third believe, and finally dare. She is a frequent speaker at events for women, couples, and teams. She hosts the Well Summit, which is a gathering for women who sit in the tension between feeling too much and not enough. And she also leads Camp Well, which is a four-day soul care retreat in the mountains of Colorado. On top of all that, she conducts Enneagram workshops because she herself is a seven. Jen lives in northwest Arkansas, married to her best friend. Jen, it's so good to have you on the Table podcast this afternoon. It's an honor. Thank you so much. So let's dive into this question of how did influencers become our moral authorities? Both of you are in the the, uh, social media space quite a bit. What have, what have you observed about how that space has grown and captured so much attention, and I might point out, as the article does, so many of these uh, uh, folks who are influenced are, in fact, women and millennial women? Uh, Jen, you're a millennial. Speak into that, if you will. I, I will correct you on that. I, do, I think I'm just outside millennial range, but um, I will I will attempt to speak to that. I just I've been thinking about this question and considering how 
since the beginning of time in the garden, there was a temptation to self, to fulfill self. And I think that this is nothing new. I think it's just a new medium. Um, and we can see it through the history of time. And our phones are the new medium um, of fulfilling self and getting self, um, I guess, what will make us feel better, what will give us power, what will give us wisdom, what will give us knowledge. It's just the next iteration of what is out there that feeds um, the need to feed self. And I think that everything taken out of moderation becomes an addiction. And it is our, it is the thing that we are fighting in this generation is the addiction of foam. Hmm. Vivian, what's your observation on, on how this phenomenon has grown so much? You know, what's so fascinating to me is how the addiction piece that Jen brings up is so true that if you've ever watched the Netflix um, documentary on the social experiment, um, they said that there are two times that people use the term users. Users are either drug addicts or they are users of social media. And so there's definitely a dopamine hit that takes place with the likes and uh, all of us can fall prey to that. And that is one piece of what's going on. And I think increasingly, um, as we have navigated this pandemic, I think the numbers are only increasing due to um, isolation and not being able to have a, a space to really be interacting with one another. So the fact that we are grieving so many losses in isolation, I think adds to this pressure to try to find connection somehow, but it's not a satisfying connection. So even though in that article, it's talking about, you know, this on-demand connection piece, it's honestly not a real connection in real time. It's not that you can't have friends who you meet over social media, but nothing replaces face-to-face, -face, breaking bread, sharing a meal, being in each other's homes, that that kind of connection um, is the place that the Lord uses to heal. It's Acts 2. I mean, we, we see how over and over Jesus modeled, the disciples modeled, the the church models what it looks like to be in relationship and to experience wholeness and healing. And I think social media is a, um, is not is not a replacement to those true needs that God has has infused into each of us. Yeah, Vivian, I was going to say that the the pandemic, which began in 2020, and is still with us, and and really, who knows how long that's going to to linger in this in this world. It seems to me did a couple things. It, it it took away two of the church's greatest strategies, I guess you'd say, or tools. Uh, one was hospitality, and the other is the power of presence, which obviously go hand in hand. And the things that you just described are very much uh, dependent on the ability to to meet together in person, uh, to touch each other, to hear each other face to face, and see each other face to face and to break bread together. And it seemed like the pandemic just kind of quickly neutered that. And to be honest, in many ways, the church was sort of caught flat-footed in terms of its ability to even talk with each other over the internet. You know, they've had to learn, many churches have had to learn how to do that. Um, whereas the culture was sort of ahead on that. They already had lots of people blogging 
podcasting, Zooming, et cetera. Um, your thoughts about how the church rebounds from that, uh, surely eventually we'll get back together, but uh, in the meantime. I think you bring up a great point, Bill, that it that did lag a little bit. And I, I have spoken to several pastors who were putting an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to do you know, live or in person, or the cameras and pre-taping the sermons and preaching even into a, a, a camera rather than to a live audience is a very different type of teaching. And so the learning curve is steep. And I, I, there was an opportunity, I think, to really um, bring in the millennials and those who are digital natives to really be part of the solution. Often, I think the church can miss some of those opportunities because we tend to think of the older generation as the knowledgeable ones, and we have opportunities to bridge. So, I'm not saying that we need to follow necessarily the leadership of all the the youth, but they do have a lot to offer. And I think the future could be can be very bright as we think about those this upcoming generation who are digital natives and how the gospel can actually go out to far more when we utilize these tools that are at our disposal for kingdom building and um the however and and in addition to that what you are um, underscoring is that we really are in a place where we can speak into the importance and i hope we never forget how vital it is that we spend time with one another. I think people are thinking nowadays, well, you know what? Working from home, it's easier. I don't have to commute. Um, it saves the company a lot of money. Um, we, we've all kind of adapted here and there to this new way. And even attendance at church, um, it'll be interesting to see how that happens. You know, people could go to church in any part of the world on any given Sunday with the option of Zoom. And so it'll be interesting to see how how and if and to what degree people return to in-person worship together. Well, and I, I think both of you talked about how the, the worship of self or the addiction to self uh, is, is, is very powerful. And in a way, if, if church, doing church, sort of becomes something you can you – can, do at any time, and you can you can do it without worrying about where geography's gone, thanks to the internet. Um, to some extent, you then make religion a, a, a consumer item. You you know, it's it's something that, that you choose to do when you choose to do it. And again, we're sort of back to I I'm in charge of myself. I make all the decisions here. Jen, I I, I know you've had your retreats and so forth. I I. I'm curious how you have tried to navigate, um, you know, doing soul care retreats when when people are having a quarantine. Yeah, we did have to cancel uh, number eight last April, but we saw a desperation for women to get back together physically. Our waiting list is kind of crazy, and I just think it's a reflection of this um, chasm that has been created in this pandemic. Um, something unique is that when we're at this particular location in the mountains, there's no cell service. Um, there's no Wi-Fi in most of the property. And so they get this very hands-on experience as to what life would be like without social media. And we hear all the time, I wish, <laughs> 
I wish when I went home, this wasn't the case. I wish I didn't have, which technically we can turn it off. That is what is true. We do control our use of social media. Um, and it is that fight because it's become a, an addiction in so many ways. But it, it's been interesting because it has affirmed everything we're talking about. It has shown this desperate need for community and in-person. And it has also highlighted and underscored what happens, how we feel emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, when social media has not consumed a majority of our lives. Um, we get a case study for four days in the mountains without cell service and Wi-Fi. It's pretty profound. Well, I think you're pointing out something that's that's sort of counterintuitive, because from one point of view, to go on a soul care retreat, it's all I'm 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 now paying attention to myself, right? But the reality is that a lot of what's driving the 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 addiction to self is that people don't know themselves. I mean, they literally do not know themselves. They're they're strangers to themselves, and by tuning into different things on Instagram or or whatever. Uh, there's a feeling like I'm I'm getting that again that dopamine hit. I'm it's feeling good. It's making me feel better, but I still don't really know me, and I'm not even aware of that. And what you're doing is taking people. Yes, we're going to focus on you for a season, so that in fact, once you know yourself, you you kind of as C.S. Lewis says, you begin to forget yourself, and instead you're bearing the image of a, another person, namely the Lord. Yeah, I've been thinking so much about uh, Psalm 139 mm -hmm. and the 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 end of that psalm, the prayer, search me, O God, and know me, test me and know my thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And when you when you create margin, which a huge part of that is turning off things like social media, when you create margin for the Holy Spirit to speak in and search you then I feel like he gently takes your face and turns it back towards the Lord and exactly what you were talking about. Then your reflection becomes that of Jesus instead of the reflection of yourself in front of this piece of technology that's just feeding this cycle instead of pointing you vertically um, to Jesus. And there is a component. I mean, I think it can be taken um, and abused in a way if we are not careful, they, they look at self. But when we see thy, when we look inward, that is when we see the things that are turning us away from Jesus. Mm. <laughs> when we see the sin, when we see the grief, when we see the lies and fears holding us in bondage, that's what's keeping our faces away from Jesus. And I think oftentimes social media keeps feeding and fueling those things like lies and fears and negative comparison. Um, and it's this search for something that will take that pain away. And oftentimes it's a slight, just slight detour away from truth, but something appealing enough that it becomes the gospel. Well, you're actually, Can I jump into go ahead, some thoughts there? Yes. I think what Jen is describing to me, social media serves at like fast food. You drive through, you pick up something. It It's not actually satisfying. It You cannot hold a candle to a home-cooked meal right. and an incredible beef stew that has been just simmering all day long and the smell and the breaking of of homemade bread or, you know, a salad picked from the garden. There's just not a replacement, but it's 
quick and it's a quick fix. The interesting thing too, in the midst of even how you started off, um, Bill, explaining the nuns, you know, that I think that the, the, um, the ease of being able to look to these social media influencers and giving them a lot more weight than even the work that it requires to take time to read the scriptures, to reflect, to sit before the Lord, to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and our need for the Lord. That quick fix and coupled with this idea that if you have a really huge um, following and platform that somehow you become the moral expert on all fields. So you have young teenagers who have millions of followers on TikTok or any number of social media place. Uh, platforms, and they become these experts. And what is so interesting to me right now is that because this generation is so visual, if your church website uses the wrong font, the content can be completely (laughs) solid, but it loses credibility. Hmm. And your Instagram feed, if you don't know how to put the the pictures incorrectly, um, and they, they look off-centered, you lose credibility. So the content may be excellent, but the way that the judgment is passed from not only our youth, but from everyone is so fascinating to me that this authority comes from these numbers that sometimes are purchased, and they are also coming from a place of just external beauty. So the content may, have, may just completely be fast food content, Uh, But if you aren't making it, if you um, are just looking at it from an external point of view, that's the stuff that keeps getting shared and re-shared and liked and liked and liked. So it's really the social experiment that we're in right now is really fascinating. So on one hand, there's nothing new under the sun, but this this particular point in time, we are in a place where I think there's just a lot of um, deconstructing and confusion and where authority lies is often in places that may not actually hold a lot of substance. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So you're, you're describing the content can be filling, but it's not nourishing, certainly not to your soul. And, and you're picking up on a point here that the this article by Lay Stein uh, picked up. The women we've chosen as our moral leaders aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? Those are, those are, those are pretty deep questions. Um, Vivian, I, I want to come back to you because I, I 
perceive from your first book that you have a, a Ph.D. in margin, uh, having spent margin to contemplate some of the deeper questions of life, because if, if you're indeed a cancer survivor, uh, I, I have some personal experience with that. And once you hear that C word, your life will never be the same. That's a one-way door that uh, you now in a new reality. I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on on how that experience informs the path that you've chosen today or that, that you've been called to today. Yeah, that um, I don't think anyone prepares for the type of uh, – <laughs> The, to hear the the phone call from the doctor that says you have cancer, I don't think anyone can prepare for that kind of a mm. a call and a derailing. And to me, that has only solidified even more the importance of the foundations of our faith. Um, when life doesn't make sense, all the more we need to be able to draw from deep wells and the faithfulness of God's character his unchanging word. And this is, um, I mean, the truth is I'm a cancer survivor and I'm grateful every day for the privilege. And I understand on one hand that I am here still because for whatever reason the Lord has works for me that he prepared beforehand that I should walk in. And so there's a, there's a sense of, uh, I understand why I'm here. The thing that I kind of go back to, as it relates to this conversation in particular, is recognizing that our generation and this and North American Christianity, we don't like to deal with pain. Hmm. We are not very accustomed to pain. And so we do want to, if we can get the fast food, we will get it because we just don't know what it's like to fast. We don't know what it's like to go without. And so it's just so much easier to fill the emptiness with the food or the purchasing or the buying or the social media or the scrolling. It's like, we just are not comfortable with our pain. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing now, you know, through this pandemic, through our circumstances is that we have, we are not accustomed to dealing with pain. And so the cancer journey for me exposed me to how much I, um, even my, my framework by which I live my faith out, um, it's not about the outcome. You know, our object is not, the goal is not the outcome. The goal is Jesus. Mm. But a lot of times we still have this prosperity gospel. Like, you know, we put in the prayers and we get out the answers and we um, expect that our life will be pain-free if we are faithful to the Lord. And yes, it's true that we reap what we sow and those are principles, but we are not guaranteed a pain-free life. Mm. Powerful. Jen, um, how might the church learn from these influencers in terms of how it communicates, uh, how it speaks into people's lives, um, and particularly with, with millennials uh, and, and Gen Zs and the, and the rising generations? Obviously, there's a phenomenon at play here, and while it has some dark sides to it, um, the fact that it is so powerful and effective, it seems like there ought to be some lessons out of it that we might uh, perhaps benefit from. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I talked to Vivian about this last week. It's that tension that, you know, we sit in, that I sit in, um, having an Instagram account. <laughs> um, 
you know, what, what role, if a role do I play? Like part of me just wants to delete and just get out of there because I don't want my part of me doesn't want to be a part of something that is causing people to stumble or be misled or causing an addiction. And yet, um, technology, if used wisely, and like you said, going into the space, these people already are, um, what, what is my responsibility, uh, to adhere very strictly to the gospel to, to double and triple check and pray over. I mean, I have had multiple things that I have sent before I post something on social media to multiple people in my life to check my theology, or could this be misleading? Or like, I am fully aware of the weight of words um, and the presence of words in the life of people that I don't even know. It's one thing to get to sit face to face in a discipleship relationship and, and work through the nuance of things and ask questions and, and have feedback, but to just post something, um, there is a responsibility that we have if we are going to engage in that space. I think also having an understanding of who the people in our congregation are following, the people in our small group, the people in our, we're discipling, like who are they following? Who are they learning from and quote, being discipled by? Um, I think us understanding that's really important. And I think the church um, I think biblical literacy is, it's always been important, but I think we have really got to equip our congregation, our bodies of believers with biblical literacy, the spiritual disciplines that have been around for 2000 years. We've got to stay true to those things. Culture is always going to shift and change, and there will always be something else vying for the attention of our people vying for the attention of believers. Again, we've seen it since the beginning of time. So I think us staying faithful and obedient to teaching biblical literacy, helping our body understand that the spiritual disciplines, I love what you said, Vivian, this understanding. I, I think for me, my burden right now is um, helping equip and disciple a healthy theology of, of grief and suffering. Like I am an Enneagram 7. I want anything I can do to avoid pain, I will do it. And so it has been personally the most transformative thing in my life the last four years to understand the theology of pain and suffering. And I think it is a very counterculture teaching right now in a world that wants to feel um, good and for pain to be avoided and for instant gratification. I think that's a really good point, Vivian, that you bring up. Um, so just going back faithfully teaching the basics of our faith. Jen, you mentioned Psalm 139 earlier, and I think it's true of Psalm 139 and, and frankly, so many of the Psalms, particularly of David. Um, in Psalm 139, from one point of view, it sounds like David's talking all about himself. But what he's actually doing in talking about himself is he, he's, he's always pointing and referencing everything back to God. And so there is a way for us to be mindful of self, but always in relation to God, and that as we use social media and other forms of reaching people and talking to people, it's not that it's bad to talk about self and to, to help people reflect on themselves, but always to bring it back to how does yourself relate to God, because ultimately that, that's, the, um, that's the reference point. 
Yeah, I, t- I talked about trauma last week on a social media post. And one of the things, again, that I hold myself accountable to for me personally is where do I lead people to scripture at the end of this? And so I, I want to make sure that anytime I am talking about the work of knowing thyself so that I may know God, I love that you brought up the Psalms and how much David wrestles with that over and over, but you see him even um, go to the depths of despair, walk through confession, which is a look at self, and then going to point his eyes to Jesus, to the Lord, um, and and finding the freedom from that shame through the lens of repentance. And so it's a journey for him over and over again that he keeps moving on. I think right now people are getting stuck in the middle of that, like focusing on self and then getting into a shame spiral um, without the understanding of the gospel, the work of the gospel. And so I think we just have a responsibility to, to do that work with people we are entrusted with the people we disciple, the people we're face to face with is the complete work of the gospel and walking them through that. Vivian, you've been working uh, with crew for 30 years on two of the major universities in our country. I'm, I'm curious what you've seen. Is there any shift uh, in, in college students thinking around this, this whole matter of where they take their cues from? Yes, and it's there have been so many shifts, and I actually haven't been like on a college campus in a, a number bit. of years, okay. but I've spoken at um, many conferences and have conversations regularly with college-age students and recent graduates. And the change that takes place in the life of a college student itself is remarkable. When you go in as a 17 or 18-year-old and you graduate you know, in your 20-somethings <laughs> these days. You, it's not guaranteed that it's a four-year thing. So the change that takes place just in um, personal growth and development is remarkable. This whole new generation, however, they are so smart in ways that we, I don't think we are or were at that age. They're exposed to so much more. Even you know, junior high kids are exposed to so much more. Um, They get their news in, in real time. So I can, uh, you know, I'm not a very big sports person, but I can know the scores of all the major things just use watch using Twitter. You know, I can be up to speed on, and I can actually sound like I know what I'm talking about if I just, you know, (laughs) repeat some of these tweets. Right. So the, so this generation on one hand knows what's going on. And this is the biggest challenge, especially to your listeners who are um, pastoring churches or in any kind of leadership. Our youth are very aware of the social issues of the day. And when the church does not address them, the church loses credibility. Little C, big C. Uh, This is where the, the use of social media in terms of informing people about things is unmatched. So what would have normally taken more time to get information dispersed, it's now in the moment. Um, This last year, um, I'm an Asian American, so in a podcast, you may not know that, um, but uh, the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and anti-Asian racism has been 
so significant. And in my community, there's been so much Mm -hmm. hurt. I was grateful that through social media, my friend, like Jen, could know what was going on and reassure me that here in Arkansas, I commit to standing with you. And if I witness anything like this that happens, I'm going to do something about it. Well, it wasn't like I picked up the phone and called Jen. It really was through social media that she was then informed of what was going on. So there are benefits. And I think the more that we understand that as leaders, that we can speak to the to the real topics of our day. And that is going to help our youth to feel like we can bring together the real-time issues along with the scriptures and help navigate. And that's where the disconnect has happened. But I think that we can be intentional about bringing it together so that the church retains the credibility that it has. Well, our time is just about gone. I have one final question for both of you quite quickly. Um, So who are the social influencers that uh, you listen to? I think one of my favorite, a uh, couple of my favorite people, one is Lori Ferguson. Um, she is a brilliant writer and she writes with vulnerability and honesty. Um, she, when, when she is asked a question, she does these Q and A's sometimes where she lets her, her, you know, followers ask her questions. And if there's something too personal or not appropriate, she's honest and, and draws a line and draws a boundary. Um, and I just appreciate how she engages with her with her followers responsibly. She's probably and then the and campaign. Um, I've enjoyed following them. Um, just the conviction and compassion they have for for both sides of issues and policies. I think has um, been a healthy and challenging way for me to view what's going on um, in the world right now. That's great. How about you, Vivian? Now, I've been really seeking to um, expand the the people that I listen to and hear from. I, I think that often we can get locked into our own echo chambers. And so I've been intentionally trying to diversify my uh, my social media feeds and to learn from a number of different people. Um, I really appreciate the women who teach the um, the truth the truths. Uh, Truth's Table podcast, Three African-American Women, and it's by African-American women for African-American women. But as a non-Black woman, I'm learning a lot about Black history and Black culture and the challenges because they don't have to try to explain things. They're just being who they are, and that's been really helpful. Um, Again, uh, women like uh, Latasha Morrison and Be the Bridge, think there's just some great resources out there that has been helpful to expand my understanding. Um, I think that it's important in these days to uh, to stretch a little bit more and push ourselves out outside of our comfort zones. And I don't think that I think even in my marriage to my husband, we're going to be celebrating 30 years next month. Congratulations. We thank you. It's a miracle. <laughs> and in that we don't agree 100% on all things theological or political or otherwise. In fact, and often we are in opposite spectrums, but it is good for me to be exposed to people who think differently than me. And so I'm always wanting to increase the the types of voices I hear from, especially from um, communities of color. 
Well, this is great. Vivian Mabuni, Jen Jett, thank you so much for being with us today on the Table podcast. And if you would like to go a little bit deeper into this topic, we encourage you to uh, sign up for Table Plus, uh, an expanded service where we take the we take the issues that we're discussing and go a little more in detail with our guests. And so uh, subscribe to Table Plus, and uh, you've got more content to come. But for the Table Podcast, I'm Bill Hendricks. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.